uncensored views. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day, he hopes, for President Biden. It is a day that marks exactly halfway during his presidential term. Or will it be his first presidential term? It is almost inconceivable to me that at age 82, uh, President Biden is going to be running for re-election. I think he would have a very tough time uh, making it to re-election. But he today is boasting about economic accomplishments and other accomplishments. And the White House is trying to convey this notion that they are surging and that there's momentum behind the Biden Express. And they're all getting ready for a big State of the Union address on February 7th. Everybody excited about that? After February 7th, after the State of the Union address, would come an announcement of candidacy. I actually believe they are still wavering. I hope they are still wavering for the good of the country and for President Biden's own good. It would be a very difficult race. We will get into why. Speaking of difficult races, uh, not a particularly good day for President Trump. He was compelled, he and his lawyers, to pay uh, almost a million dollars, $987,000 and some change to Hillary Clinton and other people that he had sued. Uh, President Trump had launched this lawsuit that uh, claimed that the Russia hoax was all a gigantic conspiracy involving James Comey and Andrew McCabe and uh, Christopher Steele and Hillary Clinton herself. They're all sued, 30 people. And uh, the judge uh, just threw the lawsuit out, not only dismissed it, but dismissed it with prejudice, suing, uh, awarding, because this is already decided, unless they have some kind of successful appeal, which they will probably attempt, the um, Trump forces will be compelled to pay $900,000 plus, almost a million bucks. That's nothing compared to the $250 million Trump is being sued for by Letitia James, the Attorney General in New York. But uh, what about this Judge Middlebrooks, and what is it that he says in his decision, and why does anybody care? We will get to that coming up on the Michael Medved Show. Partially people care because it impacts the viability of Trump's campaign, which has already been launched, and uh, he is on the verge, according to most sources, of uh, getting his social media platforms back. Uh, we will see. Uh, there is also much more, much, 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 much more on George Santos concerning his wardrobe, meaning not only what he wears in Congress, though there's that too. That's a, se a segment in the New York Times style section. But uh, his record as a drag performer, apparently not a very well-received drag performer when he was living in Brazil. There's also uh, major columns in the leading newspapers of the country, all of them, uh, by Republicans calling for his removal from the House of Representatives for the sake of the Republican Party. And there is a musical performance today uh, that conveys 
Hope for the Climate and for the Environment at Davos. We will cover that, plus a bunch of movies with some uh, very major stars included. Uh, Rob Lowe, uh, uh, we have uh, Julianne Moore, and uh, many others who are featured in, uh, and Hugh Jackman, Laura Dern, and others in some movies, one of which is actually remarkably good. We will talk about it. And we finally have the answer that the whole world has been waiting for. What is it that Lauren Boebert was fighting in a restroom uh, with uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene about? What was the subject of their confrontation which uh, gathered attention in a bathroom in the... Yeah, uh, they, I, we, we're going to flush it all out uh, in terms of what they were arguing about. No, it was not this uh, new crusade by uh, a, a number of uh, liberal Democrats in Minnesota to ensure that men's bathrooms be uh, equipped with feminine hygiene products. Why? For all those menstruating men. No, that's seriously what they want. Our phone number here is 1-800-955-1776. Uh, President Biden was um, actually today at the White House celebrating his two years since taking the oath of office. And of course, uh, the uh, his taking the oath of office was just two weeks after the the riots that shook the Capitol building. The nation was still on edge. And he was bragging the President of the United States about how much better off we are than two years ago when he came to power. This is President uh, Biden. Two years ago this week, 18 million people were out of work. Two years ago this week. Now the nut number is under 1.6 million, near the lowest level in decades. The unemployment rate is as low as it's been in 50 years. We've created 11 million jobs, 750,000 manufacturing jobs. Where in the hell is it written to say we can't be the manufacturing capital of the world in this? I mean it. Not a joke. Okay, no, it's it's not a joke. But the idea that he is gaining uh, in unstoppable momentum is something of a joke. Karl Rove uh, wrote about that, and I think what he observes is right. He says, uh, President Biden uh, talks about uh, a slew of legislative achievements that give him significant momentum and leave him with a stronger hand to play in 2023. That's the verdict of the pro-Biden media. As he contemplates re-election, his approval rating has, the, his media admirers say, surged after the midterms. Has it really surged? But according to the Real Clear Politics average, uh, it has um, Mr. Biden's approval rating rising, but only from 42.1% on Election Day to a little under 43% today. He said that's a budge, not a surge. And it's three points lower than Donald Trump's approval rating when he lost in 2020. 
Admittedly, the Republican Party's weak midterm showing gave Mr. Biden a better election than expected, writes Karl Rove in the Wall Street Journal. But victory, owing to your opponent's weak candidates, doesn't mean you're strong, only lucky. Luck often disappears in politics, especially if you're making mistakes yourself. The president's bragging about the economy is certainly a mistake. His remarks last Thursday were filled with rosy descriptions. Inflation is dropping month after month, giving families some real breathing room. Gasoline and food prices are falling. Wages are rising. Unemployment is low. And because of Mr. Biden's policies, Americans are starting to feel the benefits in their everyday lives, he said. Uh, cue the band for happy days are here again. Except, writes Carl Rove, voters aren't happy. Year-over-year -year inflation has slowed modestly, but in December it still was about five times as high as it was when Mr. Biden took office. That's the rate of inflation, five times as high. Wage increases have lagged behind price hikes for almost two years. And then there's the Biden handling of the entire documents matter, which has been needlessly inept. Uh, now, he, uh, President Biden doesn't have some uh, judge issuing a judgment against him of a million dollars to pay his most hated opponents. Trump does. Uh, but how does that work and what exactly does the judge say in defending that? We'll also be speaking coming up to Grover Norquist of Americans for Tax Reform about uh, what will happen with the debt ceiling and any chance of real tax reform in this Congress. Coming up on The Medved Show. God help me, I'm addicted to The Michael Medved Show. I'm, of course, deeply honored to receive The Michael Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved show, the uh, point that uh, Karl Rove is making in his piece is that uh, Joe Biden would have a very tough race. Uh, Team Biden, he writes, is compounding its problems with his handling of the discovery of classified documents in an office Mr. Biden used at the Penn Biden Center after leaving the vice presidency. Uh, they were found on November 2nd, six days before the midterms, but this information uh, didn't become public until January 9th in a news report. The administration also sat on a December 20th discovery of classified materials at the president's Delaware home until January 12th. This raised further suspicions. Well, of course it did. And if nothing else, Joe Biden ought to acknowledge that mistake, that it should have come out to the public uh, more, more quickly. But it didn't. Besides uh, reducing Mr. Trump's vulnerability on his mishandling of classified documents, Mr. Biden's scandal raises other questions. And this is very interesting that Karl Rove is bringing this up because he's not one of those people who normally in his politics is absorbed with smears or uh, groundless charges or unsubstantiated charges or basically demonizing his opponents. He generally is very good on issues. But what he talks about here 
is he says, Mr. Biden's scandal raises other questions. Who moved the classified materials to his office at the Palm uh, Penn Biden Center? How did secret documents get to Mr. Biden's Delaware home? Did the former vice president draw on them for speeches or other writings? Did the Penn Biden Center staff, including now Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and Biden advisor Steve Ricchetti, see folders marked classified during the nearly two years Mr. Biden had an office there? Mr. Blinken has said that uh, he had no knowledge of the documents at the time. There's also a question, and this is what is particularly striking. We've mentioned it briefly before, but I think it's going to become a, a, a more intense focus once the uh, Republican-controlled Oversight Committee under Jamie uh, uh, Comer in, uh, in Washington, D.C., once that committee is up and running. There's also a question that should have been asked in 2020. Did Chinese money fund Mr. Biden's salary and staff at Penn Biden? The University of Pennsylvania, the center's sponsor, recently dodged, saying, quote, the Penn Biden Center never solicited or received any gifts from any Chinese or other foreign entity, and adding that 100% of the center's budget comes from university funds. As uh, Mr. Biden might say, come on, man, the university received $54.6 million in Chinese money from 2014 to 2019, and money is fungible. It doesn't help appearances that Mr. Biden subsequently appointed the university's president and former trustee board chairman as ambassadors. And then he concludes this way. Team Biden is hoping that all this doesn't much matter. They're betting House Republicans will screw up for the next two years, coming across as shrill, angry, negative, and nuts. And that the GOP will nominate Mr. Trump, the easiest Republican for the president to beat. Team Biden might win those bets, but they're risky. Democrats are playing a weak hand and hoping the GOP hand is even weaker. And about his conclusion that Trump would be the weakest and the most vulnerable of all the Republican candidates or potential Republican candidates, uh, for anybody who doubts that, you should just take a quick look, as I, I want to, at this uh, lawsuit that I mentioned in Florida. Uh, the headline from the Washington Post, uh, former President Donald Trump and his lawyer Alina Habba have been fined almost a million dollars by a federal judge in Florida for what was ruled a frivolous lawsuit brought against his 2016 presidential rival Hillary Clinton and others. Uh, the the uh, statement by Judge uh, Donald M. Middlebrooks, who was appointed uh, by uh, Bill Clinton uh, way, way, way back when Clinton was president, obviously, and he was then confirmed by a Republican Senate, uh, by the way, so it's not so easy to say he's a partisan judge. But he wrote, Trump is a prolific and sophisticated litigant who is repeatedly using the courts to seek revenge on political adversaries. It's a 46-page judgment that was published late last night. He is uh, the mastermind 
Trump of strategic abuse of the judicial process, and he cannot be seen as a litigant blindly following the advice of a lawyer. He knew full well the impact of his actions, said Judge Middlebrooks. As such, I find that sanctions should be imposed upon Mr. Trump and his lead counsel, Ms. Hava. Uh, Trump, who announced his bid for presidency in 2024, Hava and the Hava Medayo and Associates Law Firm are jointly liable for $937,989.39. It always amazes me how they get such precise details. I mean, what's the 39 cents cover? I don't know. Uh, the suit was filed back in 2022. This is a, suit that lost, a lawsuit that Trump filed alleging that Clinton and Comey and Andrew McCabe and Christopher Steele had orchestrated a malicious conspiracy to spread false information that his campaign had colluded with Russia during the 2016 presidential race that he won. It was dismissed in September, and now the same judge is looking at it and saying, here we are confronted with a lawsuit that should never have been filed, which was completely frivolous, both factually and legally, and which was brought in bad faith for an improper purpose. Uh, in a blistering judgment, as the Post summarizes, he said the uh, case was intended for a political purpose and showed a continuing pattern of misuse of the courts by Mr. Trump and his lawyers, undermining the rule of law and diverting resources. No reasonable lawyer would have filed it. Middlebrooks described the legal complaint. <laughs> Tell us what you really think, Judge. Uh, okay, Your Honor. He says that uh, he described the legal complaint from Donald Trump as, quote, a hodgepodge of disconnected, often immaterial events, followed by an implausible conclusion. One example he cited was the alleged collusion between Comey and Clinton, a claim he said not only lacked substance, but was, quote, categorically absurd, given the impact Comey's announcements about the investigation into Clinton's emails had on her 2016 campaign. The judgments uh, also referenced Trump's other lawsuits, saying they demonstrated a pattern of abuse of the courts. Among them were legal complaints against Twitter, CNN, New York Attorney General Letitia James, and the Pulitzer Prize Board for a 2018 award given jointly to the Washington Post and the New York Times for coverage of alleged Russian interference. Uh, meanwhile, uh, interference with our tax system to try to clean it up, a good idea. We'll be talking about it coming up. More of Michael Medved in a moment. It's right here and right now and very present, and, and this is the moment. This is the moment. This is the Michael Medved Show. And this is the moment for a dramatic and, uh, <laughs> I am not at all sure, a, um, a likely piece of legislation to pass, but a big new legislative initiative that was put forward by House Republicans. And for people who say that Republicans are doing nothing, uh, though there are a bunch of Republicans who are, are trying to get serious about uh, uh, George Santos and actually uh, taking him 
away as a distraction and as a help to the Democrats, which he is. Every day that he remains in Congress, it helps Democrats, it helps Republicans, not at all. They need to clean up uh, the Congress of the United States from that particular uh, chronic liar and fraud. They need to do that uh, if they want at all to maintain control of Congress and maintain some credibility as a Republican caucus and as an institution in any event. The uh, House Republicans have just introduced the Mount Rushmore Protection Act this week. Now, what do you think is menacing Mount Rushmore? It's a national monument. Uh, it means, no, they don't need to protect it from uh, mining or, or uh, lumber or timber industry uh, depredations. They don't need to protect the wildlife in, in Mount Rushmore. There's some wildlife. I mean, nearby, this is the Black Hills of South Dakota. And by the way, for people who haven't been to Mount Rushmore, it's spectacular. It really is a, a wonderful, wonderful place to visit. And people who are movie buffs will remember the great scene in Hitchcock's North by Northwest, uh, where Cary Grant is actually involved in <laughs> trying to escape down the face of Mount Rushmore. It's pretty spectacular. Okay, the Mount Rushmore Protection Act is a measure that would prohibit the use of federal funds to change, destroy, or rename uh, Mount Rushmore National Monument. I, okay, I haven't heard of anything where people are planning to rename it. What would you rename it? Uh, and would, they would try to give it an Indian name? Uh, and to change the monument, to destroy it? Or to change the monument means you, you're trying to put up a, uh, a figure of a bust of President Trump to be a fifth candidate on Mount Rushmore? Uh, no, the Republicans wouldn't want to block that, right? But it seems to me that, first of all, this is not a piece of legislation that is likely to pass a Democratic Senate. I don't think Joe Biden would have uh, an impulse to try to veto it. But the, the idea that Mount Rushmore is under assault, I, I think that uh, the uh, stalwart governor of South Dakota who continues to be talked about as a presidential candidate, possibly, uh, Christy Noem, she, um, she is going to do her very best to protect this monument from any kind of inappropriate assault. Uh, speaking of inappropriate assaults, there was this fascinating story about two of the most controversial members of this Congress. They're both new members of Congress. Uh, they're both very conservative. Uh, they both have strong national followings. Lauren Boebert of Colorado uh, went on with Dana Lesh on her podcast, and she revealed uh, the news about a confrontation that, that occurred, and it apparently really did occur. Lauren Boebert conceded that it occurred with Marjorie Taylor Greene. And this was in the bathroom at the ladies' room of the House of Representatives. You don't normally have this kind of confrontation. Apparently, voices were raised 
uh, there was no damage done. We're not talking about world wrestling entertainment here for these two. But uh, here is Congressman, Congresswoman uh, Boebert uh, talking about what really happened. Listen. <laughs> okay, so I, I actually kind of um, love that that story came out because of how I was quoted. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we're talking in the congressional ladies' bathroom. Um, I'm there with Anna Paulina Luna, and, you know, people are upset about what's going on in the speaker's race. Um, it had been a couple of days. We were not electing Kevin McCarthy. We hadn't received the concessions that we wanted. And um, my, my colleague um, from Georgia, the gentlewoman from Georgia, um, came up and started, um, you know, being, being kind of nasty about it. And no one else had been nasty about it. Everyone had been very professional. Um, I have seen it, it was the most organized I have seen Congress since I've been there in two years. We had debate on the House floor, 434 members of Congress present. We were engaging in conversations. Relationships were being built and strengthened on both sides of the aisle. It was incredible. Um, and so when she started going after me, uh, I looked at her and said, don't be ugly. Because you guys were kind of like BFFs there for a while, weren't you? Or no? Am but, I just, is that just because, you know, the media was I, like, look, two women in Congress. I, I, think, I think the media saw two women in Congress. You know, there was there was nothing against her. Um, we, we travel in the same circles, right. um, have the same policy views on, on a lot of things, not everything, but um, on, on many things. Right. Okay, on many things, the one thing I don't think that uh, Laura, Lauren Boebert is deeply involved with uh, QAnon, as uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene has been. What's interesting about this is this goes back to their disagreement on uh, Speaker McCarthy, because Marjorie Taylor Greene, who got some choice uh, committee assignments, and by the way, so did Lauren Boebert, uh, they're both going to be on the uh, the investigation subcommittee, the House Oversight Committee, which is, I think, what they both wanted. Uh, the uh, that Marjorie Taylor Greene had favored and voted for McCarthy for Speaker from the beginning. Lauren Boebert, she was very narrowly elected. I mean, she had a tiniest sliver of a margin to get her elected to her second term. Uh, she had uh, been one of those holdouts, uh, so was uh, uh, Anna uh, Maria Luna, uh, who uh, she was in the bathroom with from Florida, new freshman uh, member of Congress. In any event, the uh, idea that uh, there was harsh feeling between them, uh, yes, there, there were on the men's side of things, not necessarily in the bathroom. But there were a number of conservatives who came close to blows over the interest of whether or not they were actually going to elect Speaker McCarthy or not. And fortunately, uh, well, fortunately, they got it resolved. And let's see what his speakership uh, looks like. One, uh, one can only hope. Um, meanwhile, there was a major event uh, today. And uh, it, it was one of those uh, events that happens every year. And it happens uh, on the anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision, the March for Life. And actually, there's some question here about what uh, the, was going to happen with the March for Life now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned. and. I actually am very encouraged 
by what the leaders of the march said, including Steve Scalise, the House Majority Leader who was there. Uh, there apparently was a good turnout, and for people who thought that the pro-life movement, that people who were active in the cause of human life, that they were going to just dissipate or not participate at all, well, that wasn't the case. And what is extremely encouraging to me is that what you saw there was an effort to refocus so that people aren't just uh, anti-abortion, they are pro-life and in favor of doing more for pregnant mothers in trouble. So what does that mean? We will get to that coming right up on The Medved Show. The Michael Medved Show. MichaelMedved.com particular hit from uh, The Birds featuring the late David Crosby, who passed away yesterday at the age of uh, 81. Uh, when I say a great songwriter, uh, Greg, you know who the songwriter is for those lyrics, right? Yes, it's King Solomon. <laughs> it's, it's been around for a while. King Solomon wrote three books of the Bible, according to tradition. The Book of Proverbs, uh, the Song of Songs, and Ecclesiastes. As just as, uh, and, and again, it's so much part of our lives and the, the way that those immortal words uh, about to have every, time for every purpose under heaven, that um, I, the, the harmonies that they used particularly in, in setting up that song, which I, I believe that originally the melody and the use of Ecclesiastes was a work of Pete Seeger, but I am not sure about that. I will tell you one thing. I was just talking to, to Greg during the break. The birds were uh, a uh, an interesting group, obviously a very talented group. And uh, the uh, one thing that was I remember uh, very well was that uh, they were the band at my high school senior prom. And they wanted to get out of it. They had signed the contract to do it months before they hit it big. And once you're a, a, a big top band, you don't want to play at a, a high school prom. And uh, But uh, they were held to the contract, and they showed up, and they played. Um, and Greg asked me what I remembered uh, from that particular prom in Los Angeles, and which is where I went to high school my last two years. And uh, I don't remember anything, because I didn't go to the prom. Um, and uh, then... It, it. <laughs> well, again, it's just um, 
it was one of those things where I don't feel somehow that I missed a, a big chance in life. They have a they have a, a new thing that they're doing in the New York Times where they're soliciting people to contribute to answering questions. If you could choose your college again, what would you do differently? And we will address that a little bit later in this show. They said, did you make the right choice? Maybe you attended a big state school only to get lost in the crowd, or your school was so focused on academics that you never had time to explore the city it was in. Did you choose a small liberal arts college that left you with tens of thousands of dollars in student loan debt? Or do you wish you had gone to a well-known school that offered you less financial aid? Okay, we will get to that. I have my own take on it. I certainly also have my own take on the March for Life that unfolded earlier today and was a great success, partially because the president of the March for Life, whose name is Gene Mancini, said uh, uh, that it was time because finally Roe v. Wade had been overturned, which was not, repeat, part of the Constitution. It was ridiculous to say that the Constitution had anything to say, positive or negative, about abortion. They weren't concerned with that. They were concerned with arranging a system of government that could work on a federal basis, where states would make uh, decisions about public health regulations, but not the federal government. In any event, uh, the um, March for Life president, Gene Mancini, talked about the current steps that need to be taking place. This is clip 10 for the uh, human life movement. Uh, listen. Critical to our next steps in a post-Roe America is the need to strengthen the safety net for moms and babies especially by supporting pregnancy resource centers and maternity homes that provide love, compassion, resources, and real support to women, children, and families. And by the way, Americans support this. A poll that was released this week showed that 91% of Americans support pregnancy resource centers. It's a no-brainer. Okay, this is exactly right. And by the way, I've I've had the opportunity to be a, a speaker at three different fundraising banquets for pregnancy resource centers. It's something that I believe in, and it really does show that people who say they're pro-life are pro-life. One of the things that people argue about is they say, oh, they only care about the baby in the womb. Uh, they don't care about the baby after it's born. But what what these centers do is exactly what the human life movement, the pro-life movement, has been most successful at doing, which is not legislation. It's not changing the law. It's changing minds and changing hearts. And uh, Steve Scalise, the House Majority Leader, yes, he is now, the congressman from Louisiana, was at the March for Life today, and he added to the positive message. Uh, listen, this is clip three. Every step of the way, it's also critical that we celebrate victories along the way. And boy, did we get a huge victory just a few months ago when Roe was overturned. But as you all know, 
That's only the end of the first phase of this battle. The next phase now begins, and that's what this year's march is all about. The next steps in a post-Roe era. And we in Congress, and how about my colleagues here? Chris Smith, all my colleagues behind me, who defend life? Okay, and, and basically, that's exactly the right understanding of the Dobbs decision. It didn't change the law nationally. It gave the right to change laws to the states. And uh, again, the Republicans and Democrats are both looking for nationalizing this issue again. It's a mistake. States are going to be different on this issue, and that's one of the realities that shouldn't stop people from supporting alternatives for for women uh, who need it for crisis pregnancies. Uh, the uh, cause for pro-life, there was a moving statement by the former NFL football coach Tony Dungy, who's long been a big advocate for human life, who talked about what we can learn from uh, DeMar Hamlin's cardiac arrest on the football field when he asked for Americans to pray for an end to abortion. Listen. Well, those prayers were answered. DeMar's recovering now. He's home. He's been released from the hospital. But what's the lesson in that? You know, an unbelievable thing happened that night, a professional football game with millions of dollars of ticket money and advertising money on the line. That game was canceled. Why? Because a life was at stake. And people wanted to see that life saved. Even people who aren't necessarily religious got together and called on God. Well, that should be encouraging to us because that's exactly why we're here today. Because every day in this country, innocent lives are at stake. The only difference is they don't belong to a famous athlete and they're not seen on national TV. But those lives are still important to God and in God's eyes. Okay, uh, and good for him for his participation. There's also a flashback uh, on the January 22nd, 2001 March for Life. Yeah, all those years ago, 22 years ago, that if you... Uh, Listen to that. There was somebody who introduced himself to the crowd. Listen. The fundamental axiom of Western civilization is the belief in the sanctity of human life. The 107th Congress must be about the business of reasserting this crucial principle in our law. Roe must go. The 107th Congress should enact a human life amendment to the Constitution of the United States of America. The Congress of the United States should oppose using public funds and revenues to fund abortions domestically or abroad as our president has initiated today. We must support an immediate ban on partial birth abortion in all 50 states. And we must promote with compassion the interests of organizations, charitable and otherwise, which provide support and resources for women in crisis pregnancies. And then the speaker says, I'm Mike Pence. I'm new to the Congress, but I'm not new to this cause. No, man, he's still part of the cause, which goes on in a different form in this greatest nation on God's green earth.